hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Let me go ahead and read verse 10. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Last week we considered in verses 1 through 5 the call to humility. And we witnessed our Lord using a little child as an illustration to give a pattern to his disciples about what humility should look like. And in that passage, we saw how the Lord used the child who is trusting, the child who is dependent upon his or her uh, earthly parents for everything. They also are not Uh, filled with malice. They are not filled with great ambition. They are not yet at a place where they are envious. And Jesus used that child as an example to point to what will now be referred to as the little ones. Uh, These little ones in verse 6 are not a reference to just children or children in age, but more specifically to those who are his believers, those who may be even to the point of new believers, those who are newly walking with the Lord. And in this passage, we are considering Jesus introduces a very ominous note. This ominous note is a note of judgment. It is judgment that is promised to be carried out upon those who would cause these little ones to stumble or these little ones to be hindered. Now, this is really just the beginning of some very ominous messages that Jesus gives. Uh, we certainly know that the Lord Jesus Christ was compassionate. We know he speaks of love, and we certainly know no greater love than we know through our Lord. But we also know that he also pronounced judgment. And judgment that was pronounced was not just pronounced in a general way, but it was pronounced in a personal way. Uh, Jesus would very clearly declare who judgment was going to fall upon, who judgment would uh, be upon the head of certain people. And these are difficult sayings. Uh, This passage, these verses 6 through 10, are some that have been interpreted, they've been applied, they've been preached, they've been taught, and there's, there's been a lot of different scenarios that have played out through this. But if we just look at it from the, the perspective in which Jesus was teaching, especially from the context of the matter, we'll understand what he meant. And we can, I think, easily see uh, what he wants us to understand, even though they are difficult sayings. Uh, remember, this is Jesus Christ himself speaking. Uh, We are given the Word of God to be able to understand. Now, does that mean that we're going to understand every single truth, every single moment, the very instant that we're given it? Probably not. Some things have to be retaught. Some things have to be over and over again. But the Bible is given to us so that we might understand. Not that we might just have something to debate, something to argue about. Um, that's one of the sad avenues Christianity is beginning to take, is that uh, we just want to have a good argument. Uh, We should be able to defend our faith, no doubt. 
But we also should take Jesus's words and the word of God as they are. And if we take them as they are, then we'll understand what Jesus means by that and what he means by these truths. So this passage has to be read in the context of the question that we saw last week in verse 1 of this chapter. When the disciples asked Jesus the question, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is what generated this entire series of illustrations and the series of words in which Jesus used. As we already saw and we reviewed already, when the disciples asked this question, Jesus immediately brought this child into their presence and his first words out of his mouth were, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we know that's the context. So we know that he's using the child as a means to illustrate a greater point or a bigger issue, if you will. He wasn't talking about spiritual conversion. He was not talking about them being saved. He was talking about having a change of mind as to how they viewed pride and humility. That instead of seeking great things for yourself, you should be as this child who does not yet seek great things for his or herself. So this child trusts implicitly. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they have to have the same kind of faith and the same kind of trust in the words in which are being spoken. Humility, humility, humility. That's what's at the heart of this. So in this passage, Jesus expands this teaching, still thinking about the little child. But again, the context now turns to little ones, and he's not talking about just little children. He's talking about those who are followers of Christ to the point of even those who may be newly followers of Christ. But there are severe warnings towards those who cause offense to those little ones or Jesus' followers. He warns his disciples to avoid offending. He warns his disciples that in this world, offense is going to come, but don't be the one offending. And he also takes it to such a serious, apparent, apparent extreme that even at the expense of losing a hand, losing a foot, or losing an eye, that's the steps you should take to avoid offenses. So in verses 6 and 7, Jesus pronounces his teaching regarding offenses. Again, look at verse 6. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. Now, this is one of those words and expressions that he's not talking about a little child who's incapable of belief. He's talking about a little one, a newly converted person who now believes. But notice he says it was better for him, better for who? The one who offended, right? That a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. He said it's better, it is better for him to be drowned than to offend. Now it is clear that when Jesus speaks of these little ones, he's not talking again about children in general. He's speaking to those who have been converted and need to have this mindset as a little child. We know this, again, because he says, the little ones which believe in me. He's specifically giving a warning to anyone 
who would cause a believer to sin. Now the sense of the word, the words that Christ here, again, keep in mind, he's not speaking with regard to age, but being little in their own eyes, humble, esteeming the world to be nothing to them. Little ones, those who by faith have looked unto Christ, those who have become followers of Christ, those who have received Jesus as their Lord and Savior and Redeemer, those who've made this profession of faith are those who are these little ones. Now in this world, we're seeing this play out and we're seeing a new attack on those who believe. We're seeing that Typically, followers of Christ will become the target of not only contempt, but they will become the target of reproach and ultimately and sometimes persecution and even death. It should not alarm us or surprise us that the world is holding Christianity in contempt. Jesus had said this is going to happen. This is one of the reasons he's preparing his disciples that they're going to have to be humble because he's saying the world is going to come after you. But I want you to understand that it is not going unnoticed. And anyone that causes one of my disciples to stumble or to fall, it would be better for him now to just tie a millstone around his neck and throw himself into the sea and drown than to offend one of my own. So we do take comfort in that, that Jesus Christ himself says that my disciples, when they are targeted this way, there is a judgment coming for those who persecute. Now, he does acknowledge that offenses are going to come. Uh, It would be foolish for us to live in this world and think you can live in this world without offenses. It is foolish to think that temptations will not come. Wherever fallen man is, we are going to see temptations. We're going to see offenses. The world, as we've learned, is devoted to sin. That goes back to that study in Romans 6. We spent about a month in Romans 6 talking about that sin no longer has dominion over us. But remember, sin is, does have dominion over this world. So it should not shock us that sinful acts and sinful things are being carried out and that Christians are being targeted specifically. This is not a coincidence. These are intentional targets, and yet Jesus is telling his disciples, you need to prepare for these things because these things are coming. Remember, his disciples at this moment in time do not have a full understanding of everything that's going to take place in front of them. They're still being taught They're still learning. And yet Jesus is dealing, first of all, with this concept, this principle of humility. These grindstones or these millstones, if you would, they were used for grinding. And in the the world then, grain was processed where these large round stones were used to crush the grain and would produce flour. Some of these mills would use very small stones where a person could just simply roll the stone over top and make, its, make their own flour, crush it that way. But then there were also heavier stones that had to be moved by an animal such as an ox. It was that stone, the larger of the two stones, that Jesus was referring to. He's saying it would be better for the person who offends one of mine to go ahead and tie one of the largest millstones around his neck and be thrown into the sea 
than to, than to face the judgment that's coming to him. Those are pretty severe words. Now, those are words that uh, we should take to heart, but we should also take them with our own sense of humility as to what he's saying here. He says that anyone who entices his followers to sin is committing such a heinous sin, it would be better to tie a millstone around their neck and toss them into the sea. In other words, it'd be better for that person to just simply die than to continue causing his disciples to sin. Better for him. I, I got stuck on that phrase. It's better for him. When I think about, think about how serious Jesus is being here. Better to tie a millstone around your neck and drown in the sea than to face the judgment that will be poured out on those who cause offenses to my followers. It kind of changes the word better, doesn't it? Neither is better, but that's the serious tone in which Jesus is taking here. It's better for this to take place than to continue. So our Lord senses it's better for a man, even you and I, it's better for us to endure a temporal punishment rather than to offend or mistreat any of his disciples. We have to also be careful about causing other little ones to sin. It's often something we don't think about. We don't think about, oh, woe unto the world that causes offense to us. But what about when we cause offense to another brother or sister in Christ? How serious does the Lord take that? Well, he's telling us very clearly here that whoso shall offend, uh, there's no question. And this is important because when we get to chapter, we get to verse number 15 of this chapter, guess what subject Jesus is going to talk about? offenses between believers. When one believer is offended by another believer, how do we resolve that offense? Jesus is not just speaking random here. He is speaking in a very calculated tone, preparing them for what he's getting ready to say. So we don't have a license to offend one another just because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to take every step necessary to avoid offending one another. That's how serious Jesus is about this. And he's not just talking about the sinful world that targets Christianity. He's talking about our relationship between one another. It's an amazing and sad thing when offenses happen inside of a church. It's one of the saddest things you'll ever experience when you see offense that's not reconciled that's not handled properly it destroys the unity of that body it destroys it'll ultimately destroy that church jesus is giving a very specific principle that you're going to have to face not only to deal with the offense of this world but how you're going to have to deal with offense towards one another guess what if someone offends you or you offend another person both parties are going to have to be humble. Humility, humility, humility. That's the whole context of this chapter. Even when we get to the end of the chapter when he's talking about forgiveness to Peter. Forgiveness takes humility. There is a subject that is running through 
this entire chapter. So Jesus now repeats in verse 7, he says, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. It is a sad world to think that there are going to be stumbling blocks. It's a sad world to think that there are going to be Christians who are targeted by unbelieving people. But it's also a sad thing that offenses are going to happen in between brothers and sisters in Christ. Occasions for sin and occasions for offense come in many different shapes and they come in many different forms. Many times, and I would tell you this just from from my own experience, again, you might have a different experience, most offenses inside of a church are misunderstandings. They're almost always a misunderstanding. Occasionally, yes, there's a true offense and it needs to be handled, but oftentimes it's a misunderstanding or I heard this. Those are deadly words. I heard this. No, if you didn't hear it or you heard it from someone else, you need to confirm it, that it was actually even true. But the reality is, is that these offenses are going to come. Jesus isn't saying, listen, this is going to be a world that's going to be kind to you and everyone's going to get along. He says, no, offenses are going to come. And he says, it must be this way. As long as man is in a sinful state and as long as man is in the sinful world, it is impossible for us to say offenses are never going to happen. It would be foolish for me to say that no one in our church is ever going to offend another person. (laughs) That would be foolish. It's how we handle the offense. It's what Jesus is leading up to. Now again, notice what he says, woe unto the world because of offenses, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes or he who is responsible for offending. See, we should not just take on, take offending someone else lightly, right? We shouldn't just say, well, if they're offended, they're offended. We should be humble about that. Again, it may only be a misunderstanding, I'm more and more convinced people don't communicate the way they should. We just don't. We make a lot of assumptions. We make a lot of things that just aren't true. And we just assume we know what someone else is thinking or what they've done. And we don't communicate it. But Jesus does say, woe to that person who causes offense. Now he says in verses 8 through 9, now Jesus, I said, I told you he would do this. He personalizes his teaching regarding these offenses. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off. Cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee. There's that phrase again. It is better for thee or for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Now, this is not the first time Jesus has mentioned this. All the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter number 5, in verses 29 through 30, he said something similar to this. He said, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So the Lord 
Again, showing us oftentimes lessons need to be repeated. I can personally tell you from a parenting standpoint, you have had to reteach your children the same lessons over and over and over again, and you will continue to have to do so. We are no different. We have to continually be retaught and retaught and retaught even things we think we already know. Remember, you can know a lot of things and not be actually obeying them. You can tell someone, oh, I know what the biblical, I know the biblical mandate and the command of how to deal with people who've offended me. It's not knowing, it's actually obeying it. And that takes humility. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is it sounds very severe. He's talking about removing body parts. He's talking about plucking out eyes and cutting off hands. And he, he's, he is very serious about this. Now, in the very early church, as, as strange as this may sound, there are many that when Jesus said this, actually, there are historical instances where people actually took him serious to this point where they actually removed body parts. There are cases of thieves who became followers of Christ cutting off both of their hands to avoid the temptation of stealing again. Now Jesus was not, that's not what the intent was. He was not saying inflict bodily harm to yourself. He's showing how deadly serious though he is about offenses. So he's saying you're going to have to take extreme measures to not be one who offends. Most biblical scholars that will use that terminology say this is an example of Jesus using a metaphor, a hyperbole, right? He's, he's intentionally exaggerating in order to make a point. We don't ever exaggerate, do we? We constantly exaggerate. We, we, are, we, are, we are always using terms to try to drive home why something is so important. That's what he's doing. Jesus is using a comparative uh, teaching method here. What he's doing is he's saying that if there's something that is destroying you, now this could even be for the unbelieving soul, if there's something that's destroying you, you are better off to pluck that out than to be cast into everlasting fire. Cast it away from you. Same way, if you're offending someone else, take extreme measures, no matter what it costs, to make sure that doesn't happen. Jesus is touching, though, on a subject that is repeated. It's repeated in the Gospel of Matthew a number of different times. He actually refers to the doctrine of hell. Now, it is an amazing thing that it has become so startling for example, I heard this figure on the, about the resurrection today, but again, take statistics with a grain of salt. But I heard this morning that based on surveys they do now just in this country alone, only one in four, think about this for a moment, only one in four professing Christians even believe in the resurrection. Let that sink in for a minute. One in four. On the same token, that's about the same amount that believe in actual hell. It has been so watered down, 
It has been so changed that people just simply have stopped believing that these things even occurred. Now, I will take the position that to not believe in the resurrection of Christ, you can't be a believer at all. There's, there's no way. You can say you professed. You can say you did this. You can say you've been, you've done. The resurrection is crucial to your salvation. So it's not okay for us to say, well, you can have your own opinion on the resurrection. No, you can't. You can have your own opinion on health. No, you can't. Jesus didn't have an opinion. He stated fact. I will, after three days, rise from the grave. Jesus himself spoke about hell more than any other prophet and more than any other writer in the Bible. He spoke about it. He uses the word everlasting fire and hellfire. Now again, although the subject is avoided today, Sadly, most churches, even on this given calendar day, have reduced their opportunity today to foolish antics. Complete foolishness. And instead of taking, again, an opportunity to remind people of the truth of the resurrection, the truth of the body of our Lord going into the grave, the truth of the realities of hell, and reduced it to some kind of a carnival. Jesus is teaching about a subject that is so serious, he doesn't water down, he doesn't reduce hell to symbolism, he doesn't reduce hell to a metaphor, he teaches more about hell than he did even heaven. Most of the New Testament teaching about hell comes from the very mouth of Jesus himself. When Jesus spoke about everlasting fire and hellfire, he was using something that was very common in their culture. We've got to keep this in mind. The Gospel of Mark tells us in Mark 9.44 that Jesus described hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now that's not just a random thought. Jesus is using a cultural illustration. In the Roman times, and especially even during those days, there was what was known, and this is going to be a bit graphic this morning because it's the only way to illustrate this, there was a place where outside of the limits where a garbage jump dump for Jerusalem was. It was just outside the city. It wasn't just garbage that went into that dump. It was actually the bodies of criminals and the bodies of animals were placed there. Jesus used, again, I told you this will be graphic and I, you can't help this. Why did Jesus in Mark 9.44 talk about where the worm dieth not? Because in those places of garbage and the bodies, the worm did not die. Worms are parasites. They attach themselves to the body. It's whatever its host is. And as soon as they have devoured all of the flesh off of that body, the worm dies. However, if the worm always has something to feed on, the worm never dies. At the same time, this dump also would have a continual fire that was burning. That fire was burning for the very reason that you think it's burning. It's burning because there were constantly bodies of animals, bodies of criminals being placed there. 
Again, if there's a continuous influx of bodies, there's a continuous host for the worm. The worm never dies. The fire never goes out. Why? Because there's always an influx of bodies. That's the illustration that Jesus was using. When he mentioned where the worm dies not, most people would understand, wait a minute, that's like the dump just outside the city. Now here's the frightening part. That's the picture that Jesus is using to describe hell. It puts in our mind terrifying thoughts, right? Those are things nightmares are made of. But most scholars and most people agree that the reality of hell is far worse than this. Far worse. Jesus is saying how serious it is He's giving a foreshadowing now of the coming judgment. Judgment that is set in the providence of God. God's judgment is not going to be negotiated. It's not going to be changed. Every single person who's lived is going to give an account of their life. Believers are going to give an account. Unbelievers are going to give an account. Everyone's going to give an, a life, a, give an account of their life. And Jesus, even in the terms of the unbeliever, said it would be better for you to, to spend this life without hands, without eyes, than to enter into hellfire. You'd be better off to not have your limbs than to face that. And again, remember, don't lose sight of the fact about the offenses. Our main concern should be that in this life, again, humility being this overriding concept that he's talking about here, being very careful about causing offense to other people, being sure that we're not causing others to be offended. Jesus is saying extreme measures must be taken in order to prevent and keep these things from happening. Now in verse 10, I went ahead and read that just to kind of introduce this concept for next week. Jesus prepares them for the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 10, he says, Take heed, beware, that ye despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. We'll talk a bit more about these angels next week, but just get the picture here of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, beware of this. Beware of causing offense to these little ones. And then he refers to these angels, these attendants in heaven. One of the most neglected doctrines in most church circles is the doctrine of angels and the role that they play as ministering spirits. It's one of those things that has been very much corrupted as to what angels are. And we, we see people's depictions of angels everywhere and they're ministering spirits. They're carrying out the will of God. They're not just random. There are those angels that are attending the throne that are forever worshiping God. They're watching over the people of God. At the same time, Jesus uses this beautiful description. He says that they always behold the face of my Father. That's a beautiful expression. I have to be honest. I, didn't, I did not see that until this week. 
I have blown through this so many times. I thought, what an expression and what a concept that is. The angels always behold, look into the face and notice what Jesus says of my Father, which is in heaven. The glory in which Jesus was looking forward to going back to, to being there at the right hand of his Father. These angels always obey the voice of his word. They behold his face the entire time. And notice that Jesus says, do not despise these little ones that are attended to also by the angels of God. See, what the parable of the lost sheep is going to introduce us to is Jesus is going to use that phrase, that verse we're so familiar with in the context of humility, in the context of not offending, in the context of the, the, the uh, reality of hell, the reality of everlasting fire. In verse 11, he says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus is teaching throughout this text that it, he will deal severely with anyone who hinders or offends those who are seeking after the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to seek that which was lost. I love the tenderness that we'll see in this parable next week that as a father takes diligent care for his children, Jesus here is speaking about the, the tenderness that he, he deals with his children, how he deals with his followers. The parable is a beautiful expression of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we'll look forward to that next week. So if you want to read ahead, we'll kind of review uh, verse 10 again, and then we're going to go down through verse 14. So if you'd like to study that this week, that would be a, a good source of Bible study for you. And then the following week, Lord willing, we'll get into the passage now of dealing with offense between brother, brothers and sisters in Christ. So I pray that will be a help to us. Amen.